This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 380. This episode is brought to you by the Revel Race Series. The Revel is an incredibly fast, remarkably beautiful series of full and half marathons that take place in the most scenic U.S. locations. Their next race is the Revel Big Cottonwood. It takes place September 10th. It'll take you from the Wasatch Mountains to the foothills of Salt Lake City. Register at runrevel.com. Use the code MTA for $10 off. That's runrevel.com. This podcast is brought to you by MetPro. You can hear the story of my weight loss journey on the MetPro podcast. Just go to metpro.co forward slash MTA to find the interview. And you can also book a free call with a metabolic expert. And thanks to Tribit, makers of the MoveBuds H1 wireless sport earbuds. No matter how vigorous you are training or how bad the weather gets, the MoveBuds H1 are waterproof, sweatproof, comfortable, and they fit securely. Go to Tribit.com, use the code MTA to get 10% off. That's T-R-I-B-I-T, Tribit.com, use the code MTA for 10% off. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower you to run a marathon and become a stronger version of yourself. In this episode, we share how to use emotional intelligence to harness the power of your emotions during marathon training. And just a heads up, inside the academy, you can find all of our training plans at your fingertips, our back podcast episodes, and more. Find out how to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So Trevor, you ran a trail half marathon this past weekend. How did that go for you? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, it was the first race I've done since my marathon last fall. So yeah, it's kind of a good little tune-up race, kind of see where I'm at. They call it the Buck Ridge Burn. It's in uh, Gardner's PA. But it was fun. My, my friend Jonathan and I, who I met through the podcast, did it together. It took us over three hours just to tell you how tough it is. But it was a beautiful day, and it's so good to be out on the trails again. You got a marathon coming up, the Boston Marathon should be in taper mode now. I am in taper mode, yes. And of course, as anyone who's ever tapered for a marathon knows, there's all sorts of crazy symptoms your body starts having and all sorts of mental gymnastics that you play with yourself as well Yeah. <laughs> to try to downplay some of the, the nerves and things like that. But very excited about Boston, which takes place on April 18th and getting to meet with some MTA listeners as well that weekend. So we have quite a meaty topic to get into. We're going to talk about running with emotional intelligence and what that means and how emotional intelligence or EQ, as they call it, can really help you when you're out there suffering through a race or a long run. You're going to sometimes those dark places. Before we do that, we'd like to make some shout outs to some folks in the community doing some awesome things. We'd like to say congratulations to Cecilia. She says, hello, MTA. I'm happy to share that yesterday I finished the Hanover Marathon in Germany. My finish time was 4.03.26, which is an eight-minute PR and a Boston qualifying time for my age group. Nice. Hard work pays off, even if your age starts with a five. I remember saying to MTA coach Joel back in 2018 when I signed up for coaching that I would never run a four-hour marathon. Now it's no longer if, but when. Onwards and upwards. That is tremendous. It's been wonderful just to see her continued progress, all the hard work she's put in over the last few years, and just so, so excited for her to have accomplished this. We also would like to say congratulations to Rachel. She sent in this nice email. She says, I'd like to share with you and the MTA team my deepest gratitude to MTA coach Nicole for training me to a PR at the St. Louis Marathon last weekend. 
Her guidance, training, and encouragement were absolutely perfect and everything I needed to achieve the stretch goal. When I first started training with Coach Nicole, I'd initially set my marathon goal for sub five hours. However, as we got into the training, my abilities were improving even better than expected. It may have been around the peak weeks of my training that a much faster goal could be expected and I was really shocked when she said a 435 to 440 marathon was possible. I began to visualize that a new PR was within reach. I knew I would have to draw really deep within myself to make it happen. As it turned out, the day was ideal and I fully trusted my training. I started the marathon conservatively and ran relaxed for the early miles. I picked up the pace where I could and kept myself at a manageable pace. The last six miles were rough as expected, but I pushed with all that I had left to get to the finish line, which was on a ridiculously steep hill no less. Now at the age of 50, I have a new marathon PR of 438, plus a newfound confidence in pursuing new marathon goals. I can't thank Coach Nicole enough for the strong training plan and encouragement to race toward a PR. And that comes from Rachel. Awesome. Well, congrats on the PR, Rachel. Thank you for those kind words about Coach Nicole. She is awesome. And I like how she mentioned that she began to visualize that a new PR was within reach. We're actually going to talk about visualization later on in the episode, so ties in nice. And this comes from Shay. She says, I am a marathoner. 26.2 done in the streets of Paris. What a great way to see the city. I'm so glad I was able to run this amazing race after breaking my foot right in the middle of marathon training and having to train for hours on the Peloton bike just to keep up with the cardio. Huge shout out to MTA coach Abby for getting me where I needed to be to complete my first marathon. And thank you MTA for motivating me to finally take the leap to sign up for coaching and to run my first marathon. I'm so happy with my 448 time. Wow, how about that breaking her foot? It goes to show you like anything can come up during training. You know, you just never know what life's going to throw at you. But that's cool that she continued to train, getting in her cardio and keeping her fitness going until she was ready to put weight back on that foot. So congrats, Shay, on conquering your marathon. Sounds like you picked an awesome place to run your first marathon. That's right. We also like to say big congrats to one of our coaches, Kristen Smith, who actually won the Revel Mount Charleston Half Marathon last weekend. She finished in 116.55. Can you imagine that? <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Just getting it done. Kristen's been on our team since January, and I thought it was even more cool because the Revel race has become a sponsor now of the podcast, and we've done a couple of their races. Angie, you've done several of their marathons. Unlike Kristen, you haven't won any yet, so we're still waiting on that. (laughs) My current marathon PR actually comes from a Rebel race. They have some incredibly fast and beautiful half and full marathons. All the races really feature a fast downhill slope. And their next race actually takes runners from the canyons of the Wasatch Mountains, which are spectacularly beautiful, to the foothills of Salt Lake City, Utah. And it takes place on September 10th for the 10th anniversary of Revel Big Cottonwood. Yeah, so it's well-supported, well-organized. They're always really fast. Great place to set a PR. But check out the Revel Big Cottonwood it's close to Salt Lake City. There is a price increase July 13th for this race. Hustle over to runrevel.com to register. Use the code MTA. You'll get $10 off. Runrevel.com for the Revel Big Cottonwood in Utah, which takes place September 10th. Use the code MTA for $10 off. See why we love the Revel Race Series. We're going to dive into the topic of running with emotional intelligence. I love thinking about emotional intelligence, but I'm really curious, Trevor, you're the one who came up with this topic idea. So share what occasioned relating emotional intelligence to running. So I decided to uh, 
go back to school to finish up my master's degree, something that I had started, I don't know, like 15 years ago and then got busy, you know, with career and kids. And it's interesting going back to school as a uh, person in, in my 40s, like I could really crank out the college papers a lot better than when I was in my 20s. So if you're thinking about going back to school, if you're my age or older, you might be surprised how good you can do now that you have so much more experience in life. So anyway, I'm getting my master's degree in organizational leadership. And one of the courses that I had to take was about emotional intelligence. It was actually very interesting. It was helpful too, because as Angie can tell you, I am not an emotional giant. (laughs) (laughs) You're an emotional grasshopper. (laughs) So anyway, it was it was a very helpful topic, and the book that we used uh, is Emotional Intelligence 2.0 by Dr. Travis Bradbury and Gene Greaves. I think this book was chosen because it is very practical, so it focuses a little bit on the science, but also a lot on the strategies for boosting your emotional intelligence, or as they call it, EQ. So not IQ, but EQ. So from here on out, for brevity's sake, I will just call it EQ. Now the concept of EQ was introduced to the reading public by psychologist Daniel Goleman in his best-selling book from 1995 called Emotional Intelligence. Interestingly enough, I took a class, I think it was sociology in college, and that was one of our books that we read was Emotional Intelligence. And so it would have been pretty much hot off the press at that time. And I remember that it was pretty foundational to changing the way I thought about emotions and how it related to intelligence and the way the world works, basically. Yeah, it's a classic. So around that same time, Time Magazine ran a cover story uh, there in 95. And the cover story was, what's your EQ factor? And the subtitle read, new brain research suggests that emotions, not IQ, may be the true measure of human intelligence. So it goes on to, you know, detail different tests that psychologists have put together to determine EQ and how unlike IQ, which is fairly fixed, they say, you know, it's really hard to boost one's IQ by that much. But EQ is more flexible. Uh, You can actually train yourself in EQ. And then all of these long, you know, longitudinal studies, they found that people in the workforce actually out-earn others with uh, lower EQ, even though IQs might be similar. After I started taking this course, I started thinking back on, has anybody talked about EQ in running? Or am I going to be the first? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's nothing new under the sun. So yes, people have talked about this. We had an ultra runner, Akshay Nanavanti. He's uh, the author of Fearvana, and he talked about it uh, in his book, which we featured on the podcast. So he actually writes about EQ in the book. He says, emotional intelligence is knowing when to step outside your emotions and choose a rational response. It is the ability to effectively manage the flow of communication between your animal brain and human brain. And he actually cites the uh, research of Dr. Bradbury, author of Emotional Intelligence 2.0. Bradbury writes, unlike IQ, EQ can be developed because of the brain's plasticity, that is, its ability to make new connections and new pathways. He says, using strategies to increase your emotional intelligence allows the billions of microscopic neurons lining the road between the rational and emotional center of your brain to branch off small arms, much like a tree, to reach out to other cells. A single cell can grow 15,000 connections with its neighbors. Once you train your brain by repeatedly using new emotional intelligence strategies, emotionally intelligent behaviors become habits. And one of the things that they recommend, which we want to talk about next, is emotion spotting. So here's what emotion spotting is. The authors talk about how our brains are hardwired 
to give our emotions the upper hand. All right, so we got this animal brain, this older part of our brain that reacts first. New experiences enter the brain through the five senses, of course. These sensations travel from the spinal cord into the limbic system. And the limbic system is that ancient emotional part that just was concerned with keeping your ancestors alive. So you actually feel things emotionally before you think rationally. Because after the sense experiences go through the limbic system, they finally reach the more rational, more recently developed prefrontal cortex. In other words, we feel before we think. And that kind of like relates to anyone who's ever raised children or, or worked with children because that prefrontal cortex doesn't really come online and isn't fully developed, you know, some say until your mid-20s, mid to late 20s. Yeah. And so you can see that, you know, with a young child, they feel things and they don't often think rationally through it. They just melt down. And sometimes as adults, we try to impose our rational thinking into their very emotionally aroused state of being. Mm -hmm. And there's this huge disconnect in communicating with them. And bringing it back to running, we all kind of turn into children after enough miles out there, <laughs> right? Yep, exactly. We start thinking about our survival. You need food, you need to rest, you need to, yeah. you know, those, those very basic body functions really kind of take up more and more space. Yeah, if you listen to interviews with these people that run like 100 miles, a lot of times, like if they get to the finish, their pacers are helping them. Their pacers are keeping them going, telling them when to eat, just making all the decisions because they just have been out there so long and have worn down so much that the rational part of their brain is just not firing. But for any of you listening, if you've done a marathon, there's a joke about how hard it is to do math. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Once you're, uh, you know, 15, 16 miles in. Especially if you're trying to like figure out your pace and stuff like that. It's just like <laughs> too much for my brain, certainly. <laughs> so Bradbury and Greaves, they find that only 36% of people that they tested were able to accurately identify their emotions as they happen. And these are not people who are running marathons currently. Yeah. When I was reading this book, I was also reading a book called How to Lead in a World of Distractions. I had to read that for another class. And that book also talked about emotional intelligence, and it provided a list of emotions to uh, help me, when I'm feeling something, pick the word that best describes my mood. Then you might be wondering, okay, what do you do next? Okay, you have this list of words ranging from happy, sad, angry, afraid, ashamed, and all the synonyms. So if I'm feeling happy, am I elated, excited, overjoyed, thrilled, exuberant, ecstatic, fired up, passionate, cheerful, gratified? If I'm feeling angry, am I furious, enraged, outraged, boiling, irate, upset, defended, perturbed, annoyed, touchy, irritated? So there's a whole range of words to describe the intensity of the emotion that you might be feeling. So you use these charts to spot your emotion and to put a word to it, to label it. And then you might be asking, okay, what do you do next? And the answer is, sometimes you don't need to do anything else. Just the very act of spotting and labeling your emotion kicks your rational brain into gear because your rational brain is the one that has to think about how you're feeling. <laughs> That's what's so great about being a human is we can have thoughts about our, ourselves, right? We have thoughts about our thoughts, unlike animals. As far as we know, cows are not out there in the field having an existential crisis. <laughs> you know, oh, it really sucks to be a cow. I just stand out here all day. I feel like I'm just a piece of meat to these people. <laughs> so we have the ability to use our rational brain to assess our emotional brain and to identify what we're feeling. And that very act of just spotting your emotions and labeling it begins to calm you down, calms the circuits of your brain, puts yourself more in control. So I saw this work in real time 
on myself and I, I continue to do it and I have these emotion charts and we will post one with the show notes to this episode that we adapted from the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. So you can see what these emotion charts look like. And there's lots of them out there, in fact. But then as I'm doing this, I kept looking back over old interviews and books and experts that we've had on the podcast. And one of the people that we've talked to, actually two ladies were on the show. Angie, you might remember, um, authors of the book Rebound. That's right. Yeah. One of my favorite books. That was uh, Carrie Jackson Sheetle and Sydney Kuzma. And they their book talks about how to bounce back strong from sports injuries. But I think a lot of the concepts in the book really can relate to even a person who is not injured, but is having to battle negative thoughts that happen to all of us during long distance running. Yeah, because it's about how to mentally bounce back. And they say, quote, labeling the exact feeling you have in a given moment, calling an emotion what it is, can be surprisingly powerful. Sometimes just the act of naming a feeling provides relief, allowing you to move through it and then move on from it. So Angie, how could you use this at the Boston Marathon, which is coming up fast? (laughs) How are you going to feel when you hit the Newton Hills? Well, I won't know till I'm there. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's not like you're going to carry a chart with you. Yeah, it's not like you can control the emotions that you have. The the emotions just happen. And then once you identify them, then you can choose how you think through them. So I don't know how I'm going to feel about them. I know in the past I felt anxiety. How is my body going to handle these hills? Is my hamstring going to hold up? You know, so maybe there's some anxiety. Of course, you're going to feel uncomfortable anytime you have to run a series of hills that late in a marathon. (laughs) There's feelings of discomfort and maybe being unsure about what the outcome is. But yeah, that's why emotional intelligence is so important is because it helps you in that moment when you can recognize those emotions, which can be very strong. And instead of letting it take your mind offline and just, you know, being under the power of this emotion, it can help you to come back stronger with a mental game plan to work through that emotion and to bring your best to the race, even though you're kind of dealing with these emotional roller coaster. That's right. And just listening to what Angie just said, I'm looking at this chart. Okay. I went to the uh, column that says afraid. So you've got this race coming up. You've got race day nerves. Would you say, Angie, you're terrified, horrified, scared, stiff, petrified? And those are two strong words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's too high on the intensity. We'll go down uh-huh. to low intensity. Are you cautious? Nervous, worried, timid, unsure, anxious. Yeah, it would definitely fit more into that low-level intensity. Yeah. The theory is that it helps just to recognize that, just to name it out loud and, and label it and give yourself permission to feel that because it's logical. It's natural. It's normal that you would feel that way before a big marathon. Exactly. And it really helps to know that other people are feeling that way too, even if it looks like from the outside, they're completely cool, calm, and collected. (laughs) On the inside, they are feeling emotions and having to deal with them as well. So having run 17 marathons and 150K, I am definitely familiar with the mix of emotions that one can feel on race day. It's almost kind of funny. Uh, If you look back at any given marathon I've done, uh, I could chart out where my emotions were at the starting line. I'm nervous and excited. I'm also fired up because, you know, there's high energy and they got the music playing. And then I'm a little bit apprehensive because I know it's going to be hard. Then after the first 5K and your body really settles in, you feel a lot better. You're like, content and cheerful and upbeat and pleased. Sometimes, if you're not pushing yourself really hard. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That would be tough, man, if you've got to gut it out from like the first mile. Like, I'm not the one to talk to you about that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I choose not to do that. Well, I think that was one interesting thing that our interview with Kira D'Amato was talking about. You know, what, what do you do when things are not clicking and when you don't really feel like you're having a great day? Like how to keep yourself yeah. moving forward, how to keep your thoughts in a positive framework, even when you're really doubting whether you have what it takes. Then after mile 20, many, many people can testify they feel this feeling of maybe melancholy. If you're like me and you start slowing down a lot and taking walk breaks, you can feel like even embarrassed. Like, why am I going so slow? People keep passing me. And then you're worried. And, you know, if you're a back of the pack runner, you could be worried that you're not going to make the cutoff. Or you can be frustrated with yourself. You could feel silly for being out there. You could say, I'm not cut out for this. And I've thought that before. I'm going to be like at mile 21. I think I'm going to let Angie be the marathon runner in the family. <laughs> Meanwhile, Angie is thinking like, why did I pick an easier hobby? Like, What is wrong with me? <laughs> so you go through that low valley of emotion. And then at the finish line, you're back to exuberant, elated, glowing. <laughs> Let's do it again. Sign up for next year. So given the involuntary nature of emotions and how easily negative thoughts can crop up during a marathon and during your training, I think it's helpful for you to get some strategies for growing your EQ. And so we're going to give you seven strategies for boosting your emotional intelligence as a runner. But before we do, if you want proven nutrition strategies, you should check out our friends at MetPro. Like what I did right there, Angie? <laughs> that was very clever. Yeah, Angie, you were just on the MetPro Method podcast, which is going to be posted over at metpro.co forward slash MTA. It was a great interview. I listened to it just the other day. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation that we were able to have. And I'm just so appreciative of the role that MetPro has had in my life. They've helped me so much to be able to dial in my nutrition so that I could lose the unwanted fat and get to a better body composition and really start achieving my running goals. And now you're going to the Boston Marathon. That's right. And it's so nice to have a coach who is able to help strategize with your nutrition goals and so that you can go into your marathon feeling, you know, really on top of your nutrition game because that's so important. And there's certainly been times in my life when I've gone into marathons without a strong nutrition game and it definitely really affects your performance. So to hear Angie's interview and to talk to a metabolic expert, go to metpro.co forward slash MTA metpro.co forward slash MTA. All right, so now we want to go over seven growth strategies to boost your EQ as a runner. And these come from the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. There's a section in there about self-awareness and a section about self-management. The first one is quit treating your feelings as either bad or good. Just view them as information. The authors say if you label them as bad, it kind of starts a downward spiral of negative thinking, which only makes things worse. It's normal, for example, to feel anxious at the starting line of a marathon or to feel melancholy after mile 20 when the course has really worn you down and people are passing you. But the key is to let the rational brain spot the emotion, label it, but not beat yourself up over it. Just realize that it's, it's part of the journey. That's why, Angie, when you were uh, talking about how you feel anxious before Boston, I said, hey, that's to be expected, right? That's right. Everyone feels it. Trevor, one of my favorite books that we've talked about on the podcast and actually had the author on is The Practice of Groundedness by Brad Stolberg. And he reminds readers how to choose self-compassion over self-judgment. He says, quote, if you start judging yourself or your situation harshly or find yourself spiraling into rumination, try to practice self-compassion. This is what is happening right now. I'm doing the best I can. 
And I think that really resonates with me because I tend to be someone who's really hard on myself and often expect perfection. And I can get into that space of self-judgment really easily. So that yeah. I think that's why that book really resonated with me and, and this quote in particular. And one thing you can do to jolt yourself into self-compassion is think about what advice you'd give a friend who was saying the same things that you're saying in your mind or going through your same situation. You would probably have compassion on your friend. You probably wouldn't come down hard on him or her, right? So oftentimes we are more compassionate with others than we are with ourselves. So the trick is to think about what advice you would give a friend and then be willing to take your own advice. Yeah, very true. The second strategy that they talk about is to lean into your discomfort. Of course, this resonated with us as long distance runners. The authors write, rather than avoiding a feeling, your goal should be to move toward the emotion, move into it, and eventually through it. You see, most people spend their time trying to avoid uncomfortable things, physically and emotionally. As long distance runners, we know how to seek out discomfort. You know, we have to lean into the pain. Ultra runner Courtney DeWalter famously describes going into a deep pain cave as she does her ultras. Other people have talked about being on the struggle bus. So physical discomfort obviously comes with the territory, but often we don't realize that emotional discomfort, that is those medium to high intensity negative feelings, they're bound to come as well. And when they do, it'll provide you with an opportunity to grow in emotional intelligence as you start to spot and label those feelings when they arise and let your rational brain get used to taking over to talk through and make sense of the signals you're getting from your emotional brain. So what they recommend is to accept your feelings as important information that can create greater self-awareness. We often hear about listening to your body. This is kind of like that. It's like listening to your emotions. When you view your feelings as information, it removes the self-judgment and it gives you permission to lean into the discomfort. So you say your foot is hurting and leaning into discomfort is acknowledging like my foot is hurting. Often, though, the second dart comes in and we start catastrophizing the situation and we think, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to finish this race or it's going to hurt. You know, we kind of like borrow trouble from the future. Yeah. We get out of the present and we start borrowing trouble from the future. We start thinking, I should be running faster. This shouldn't be happening to me. And we like get out of that space of self-compassion and we try to escape the present moment instead of leaning into the discomfort and acknowledging it. Yeah, and lately you've been really careful about using the word should in reference to what you should be doing or should not be doing. Yes, for a lot of people who have trouble staying in the present moment, uh, should or shouldn't are kind of key warning signs that you're starting to enter a place of self-condemnation and judgment or even to other people. You know, they should or shouldn't be doing that. So, um, you know, maybe you'll notice if people pay attention to their own language, because <laughs> I used to say it a lot. Okay, the third strategy is to stop and ask yourself why you do the things you do. And all of these sound really simple. And I guess they kind of are. Stopping to ask yourself why you're doing it is actually a technique that we've talked about on the podcast for tapping into your deeper motivation for running a marathon because that's what's going to sustain you as a lifelong runner. We've done an episode before about the power of why. So you can use this. If you feel a negative emotion about yourself, about your running creep in, it helps to remember why you do it in the first place. Probably most of us are not doing it to win. Right. No one's paying me to run half marathons and marathons. So why do I do it? Everyone answers this question a little bit differently. I run because I enjoy the challenge and the adventure and the freedom of having a body and mind that is fit enough to do something like that. To me, it's all about the adventure. 
you know, that's why I do love to travel and race and stuff. And running has really given me an awesome opportunity to explore and to meet interesting people and live life more fully. So if I tap into that why underneath, then it helps me not to get so disappointed when I have a bad day out there because it's the big picture that matters. And it also helps me take my ego out of it because if I listen to myself and all the reasons I have for running, I'm not doing it to impress others. So why am I so worried about how I look or if everyone's passing me? (laughs) I also remember that I'm choosing to run marathons because it is hard. It is challenging. That's the magic of it. There's a reason why only 1% of the world's population ever do it, the ones that are stupid enough to. (laughs) (laughs) If it was easy, everyone would run a marathon, obviously. So for me, it's not about the running per se, but it's about living life more fully, and it's the experience. And through running, I find the freedom to explore nature, to push my limits, to live life more fully, to have mobility and health. So stop and ask yourself, why are you doing this? It could really help. Angie, why do you do it? Well, that's an interesting question because I think the answer has changed throughout my running journey. Like when I started running, my why was probably totally different than why I run now. And I think now as a more experienced slash mature runner, (laughs) (laughs) I maybe do have a more nuanced approach. I see things more from a big picture. I want to be a strong, healthy runner for life. And running helps me feel like the best version of myself. And I also like to push myself and just see what is possible, you know, what I can accomplish. It's not about racing other people or comparing myself to other people. It's really about getting the best out of myself. I love it. Exactly. So stop and ask yourself why you were doing this long distance running thing. Write it down. Actually in the academy, one of the first things we have people do is to explore this question. We have a course on mindset and we call it finding your big payoff factors. And we talk about how not all reasons are created equal. And there's deeper reasons for wanting to train for a marathon that will keep you going when uh, the days get hard that you can kind of uncover and unearth. So strategy number three was stop and ask yourself why you do the things you do. Another good question to ask yourself is why do you have earbuds that keep dying? (laughs) (laughs) Or are uncomfortable. (laughs) Shameless plug for our sponsor, Tribit, makers of MoveBuds H1. They're high quality earbuds focused on performance for runners and for athletes alike. The phone calls are ultra clear. There's four microphones built in. There's noise reduction. They're actually sweat proof, comfortable, and they have a long battery life. That's right. The MoveBuds H1 offer 15 hours of music playback per charge, and they come with a charging case that has an additional 50 hours of playback charge. So the long battery life ensures that whatever you're listening to doesn't end before your long run or workout does. And if you're worried that sweat, earwax, water, and dirt are going to cause a bacteria buildup in the ear. The MoveBuds H1 are different. They feature an antibacterial ear tip that's specifically designed to prevent bacteria from growing. So it leaves you with nothing but immersive crystal clear sound. So just go to Tribit.com. Use the promo code MTA at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Tribit.com. Use the code MTA. And the fourth strategy for boosting your EQ as a runner is simply to breathe right. That was literally the name of the chapter. The authors say that taking a slow, deep breath can help flood your brain with oxygen and that engages the rational brain. Yeah, have you ever noticed that when you're stressed out, thinking about something worrisome, maybe in a tense situation, that you start to take shallow breaths and almost like hold your breath, which is definitely counterproductive because oxygen is so important to every function in our body. 
actually noticed that in myself last year. I was just holding my breath inadvertently, and I didn't even know I was stressed out. I mean, I was busy, had a lot on my plate, but then I, I noticed I'm having to remind myself to breathe. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> you know you're too busy when you have to remind yourself to breathe. <laughs> yeah. It was like almost a way of backing into the fact that I was stressed because I wasn't even aware I was that, under that much stress, but my breathing clued me into it. Right. There's been a lot of people that have talked about the, the power of taking deep breath you know, for its impact on the brain. We had a mindset expert on the podcast who really studies the brain and how it relates to success. John Asaraf, in his book, he has something called Take Six, Calm the Circuits, which is taking six deep rhythmic breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth, while saying, I breathe in calmness, I breathe out fear. Do it six times and it'll calm the circuits of the brain. It'll calm yourself down. Kind of like a mini reset that you can do anywhere. You know, if you're stressed yeah. at work, if you're in the middle of a run, if you're stuck in traffic, you can breathe. <laughs> so then I was thinking, okay, well, breathing is important for runners. How can this relate to, you know, something we could use when we're out on a run? So just like focusing on one's breath during meditation is important, runners can achieve a meditative state by connecting their cadence and their breath. So your cadence is how many steps that you're taking every minute. Yeah. So Bud Coates says, rhythmic breathing creates a pathway to deep centeredness, and you can achieve centeredness by focusing the mind on fitting breath to your foot strike pattern as you're running, and then this allows you to remain as relaxed as possible. It quiets any stress in the body that hinders performance, and he says that being, quote, with the breath is the most effective way of being present. That's a pretty elegant way to define, you know, what it means to be in the present, is to be with the breath. You can't be breathing for the future. You can't be breathing for the past. You have to breathe right now. And that's a good way to check in with yourself if you're struggling with stress or anxiety is just bring it back to the present moment. Focus on your breaths. You know, maybe do the take six exercise, calm the circuits, and just do those mental resets and physical resets as often as you need to. Yeah, Angie, you were actually quite good at taking deep breath to calm yourself down. I've seen you do it many times when I come into your presence. My stress breathing? <laughs> You've had lots of practice. <laughs> so the fifth strategy is to smile and laugh more. Deliberate laughter and smiling has been proven to lift one's mood. And I found this to coincide with what I read about Eliade Kipchoge, the world's greatest marathoner. Kipchoge, of course, is the only person in history to run a sub two hour marathon. So when he did that in 2019, he was moving along at an average speed of 13.2 miles an hour. He was running 434 per mile for 26.2 miles. Mind blowing. <laughs> I know. If you watch him, it's like poetry in motion. And he's so zen. He's like this gentle warrior. I mean, his body is flying, just cutting through the air. But his face is a perfect picture of calm. And like I said, very zen-like. Just watching on the TV, you can't see any visible signs of discomfort on his face. Yeah, I remember recently at the Summer Olympics, where the conditions were just so hot and humid in Japan. Yeah. And people are dropping like flies off the marathon course. And that was one of the things that the commentators pointed out was how Kipchoge just looks so zen-like. And he was obviously suffering just as much as everyone else. Yep. But he just had this aura of calm about him. And not only that, you'll see him smile. <laughs> yeah, that's the point is as it really gets hard as he gets to the end. And just like everyone else, I mean, his body is screaming at him to stop and he's keeping up that blistering pace, he will force a smile. And the commentators, they always point out like, this is when you know that he's in real pain. <laughs> it's a, actually a pain management strategy. There's a study published in Psychology of Sports and Exercise that found that runners who smiled use 
less oxygen, they ran more economically, and they had a lower perceived rate of exertion than those who frowned compared to the control group. So smiling sends the signals to the brain that we are happy, and then the brain, wanting to be in sync with the body, releases happy chemicals. And it's interesting, even no matter how much pain you're in, you always can force a smile. Yeah. Think back when you're like gutting it out on the marathon course and you see a race photographer and you're like, oh, <laughs> you kind of like straighten up your running posture as best you can. Put on your best. Put on your smile, <laughs> you know, and you like get past them and then you're like collapse back into your, your bad running form. No, I'm kidding. But it does give you like a temporary boost. Like, oh, I better smile and look like I'm not about to die out here. <laughs> Sometimes in the later miles of a marathon, I'm obviously suffering a bit. And I try to think, like, I think of the spectators. And so I smile and think, I want them to see that I'm out here having a good time. Because often people have this perception that runners are miserable because they think they would be miserable if they were out running. And yep. so I want them to think, like, I'm doing this because it's fun, ultimately. Yeah. And I enjoy it. So I'm going to tell my face that I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, those race photos, man. There's so many unflattering race photos out there. <laughs> You know, you get the email, here, view your race photos. I'm like, delete, delete, delete. Actually, nope, I can't nope, even nope, delete nope, them. Nope, nope, <laughs> nope. It's like, oh, one out of 20, I'll take. <laughs> but it, it made me think of how funny it would be just to go around and race and like try to amass the most miserable looking race photos. <laughs> like you run by the photographer and you like tuck your chin in really deep, like you have a double chin. Stick your stomach out as far as possible. <laughs> you could do like uh, a, a portfolio of like terrible race photos. Massive. It's an idea for your book. It can be like illustrated with terrible race photos. Yeah. Trademark. <laughs> Whatever my book will be, it will be terrible. I guarantee <laughs> yeah, <that>. right. <laughs> hey, and speaking of smiling, you should give Athletic Greens a try. That'll make you smile. Right, Angie? That's right, because it is so incredibly healthy, but also delicious. AG1 contains 75 proven vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, a multimineral, a probiotic, green superfood blend, and more, all in one tasty serving. Athletic Greens covers your bases, fills in those nutritional gaps in your diet, and it's delicious. It's like drinking pure health. That's right. And another thing that will put a smile on your face is their customer service. Um, I've told the story before that my dad started taking Athletic Greens after he was very sick with COVID. I recommended this to him and he loves it. He's been taking it ever since. And his monthly order was late and they contacted him and apologized about his order running late. And they sent him a whole free month of the travel packs. You know, he was just really impressed, not only by the product, but also by the customer service. Yeah. And he's a hard guy to impress. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> Check them out at athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. They'll put together something special for our listeners. You can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five of those free travel packs that Angie was talking about with your first purchase, athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. All right, we got two more strategies to talk about. Number six is called take control of your self-talk. Bradbury and Greaves write, what you allow yourself to think can rumble emotions to the surface, stuff them down underground, and intensify and prolong any emotional experience. And of course, this has been echoed in many a book on mastering the mental side of long-distance running. Alex Hutchinson uh, writes in the book Endure uh, about a study from the University of Wales where 13 paid volunteers were told to pedal a stationary bike for as long as they could during a time exhaustion trial. So you just pedal hard until exhaustion. As they pedaled, a screen flashed images of happy or sad faces. What was interesting is the images were imperceptible. They were like 16 millisecond bursts. So that's faster than a blink. So their conscious rational brain 
couldn't even see it, but their subconscious brain is still seeing either happy or sad faces. And uh, the cyclists who were shown the sad faces rode 22 minutes on average before they came to a point of exhaustion. You guys probably know where this is going to go. The cyclists who were shown the happy faces rode for three minutes longer, and they reported a lower feeling of effort. Pretty interesting. So he concludes, seeing a smiling face evokes feelings that bleed into your perception of how hard you're working. So this kind of actually relates back to the last point as well, to smile and laugh more. So if you are smiling on, let's say, your race course, which is helping your emotional and your physical state, other people are seeing that. Yeah. And it's going to help them go longer as well. I've also thought about like, imagine you have to, it's the the race of your life. Like you were going for a PR, but everyone in the crowd has been instructed to only frown at you <laughs> and do thumbs down. Imagine how that would throw you off. Yeah, that would be awful. <laughs> Unless you're in on the joke, seeing a smiling face. Or um, a stranger cheering for you. <laughs> yeah. Puts a, a positive thought in your mind. How much more can positive phrases help? In fact, there's another study by the same researchers. They had 24 volunteers also complete a cycling test to exhaustion. They gave half of the test subjects guidance on how to use positive self-talk. They told them to use phrases like, feeling good, push through this. And in the test, the positive self-talk people lasted 18% longer than the control group. And they also reported lower perceived exertion. That's why having a positive mantra when you run a marathon is so, so smart. That's right. We like to talk about the mental aspect of running, and it is always fun and inspiring to hear what people's favorite mantras are. And we've had runners in our community share some of their favorites. So we'll kind of give you a sampling of what helps keep other runners in a positive frame of mind. If you can take it, you can make it, which is a quote from the movie Unbroken. Another one is, you are capable of much more than you think you are. Another is, just keep running. Do or do not, there is no try. That comes from Yoda. That's right. You knew that? You don't watch Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) One doesn't have to watch Star Wars to know some (laughs) Yoda-isms. That's true. Sweat in training so I don't bleed in battle. Come what may, I will run. Hills pay the bills. That's a good thing to tell yourself when you face a hill. As the race gets longer, I get stronger. I don't stop when I'm tired, I stop when I'm done. The day will come when I cannot do this. Today is not that day. And one that comes up a lot is I can do hard things. That's right. Yeah, that really resonates with people. Yes, it does. So the final emotional strategy, number seven, is to visualize yourself succeeding. Since our brains cannot distinguish between what we see with our eyes and what we visualize with our minds... Why not just visualize yourself winning at life? Scientists have taken MRI scans of people watching the sunset and then compared them to people just visualizing a sunset in their minds and the same regions of the brain light up in both scenarios. During the Winter Olympics, which just happened here uh, in 2022, I watched a lot of athletes, especially the snowboarders, uh, they ran through their routines. Like if they were doing, you know, freestyle jumping and stuff on the snowboard, You could see them as they're waiting to go, standing behind the gate, mentally running through the moves and moving their body and waving their hands, sort of like in a dance motion. And the commentators were pointing out that these athletes have been taught to visualize themselves twirling through the air. So when they go out there, they're just simply doing what they've visualized a million times. And there was one of the uh, Olympic medalists, Eileen Gu who was doing this visualization stuff. And so I went and I found an article that she wrote uh, in the New York Times. 
She said, quote, The work begins with visualization. Before I attempt a new trick, I feel a tightening high in my chest, between the base of my throat and the top of my diaphragm. I take a deep breath and close my eyes. As I ascend the gargantuan takeoff ramp, I imagine extending my legs to maximize lift. Then I picture twisting my upper body in the opposite direction I intend to spin, generating torque before I allow it to snap back the other way. So she goes through exactly like this is all in her taking place in her mind before she even goes and hits the jump. Yeah, that's really amazing. And I know a lot of elite athletes work very closely with sports psychologists for this kind of imagery and integrating the emotional aspect of it with the mental preparedness and getting those mantras and that visualization on target. You'll find it helpful to visualize yourself successfully completing your long run even before heading out the door. Try to imagine your route, see yourself actually moving along the road or the trail, completing the miles. If you're doing it out and back, kind of think in your mind where that spot is where you're going to turn around, kind of visualize yourself reaching it and coming back. And it is fun sometimes just to head out the door without a plan. Like I realize that, but even heading out the door without a plan can be visualized. That's right. And I think especially if you're feeling anxious about a run, if it's going to be a tough workout, maybe a speed workout or a long run that you're trying to hit a specific pace, that's where the visualization can be so beneficial. And, you know, like you said, Trevor, there should be a balance in your training between those easy laid back runs and the ones that you really prepare for emotionally and mentally. Yeah, running coaches love to have their athletes study the course in advance, but uh, I've got a marathon coming up in June of this year, June 26th. I'm running the Marathon du Mont Blanc in the French Alps. Super excited. And I've never been to that part of France, to Chamonix. That's where the the famous Tour de Mont Blanc is. So I have studied the area, trying to make reservations and stuff. And I've watched a lot of YouTube videos. I've watched like way more hours of videos than I probably need to. But <laughs> but I'm kind of obsessive, I guess, a little bit when it comes to researching places that I'm going. So I, I've really had a chance to visualize um, the terrain. Although, you know, I'll find out when I get there, a lot of stuff. <laughs> right. There's so many uh, changeable factors like the weather, how you'll be feeling physically, that preparing in advance is helpful because there are so many things that we can't control that at least having some knowledge of the course and and aid stations, and what to expect along the way can be helpful. So how do you see yourself um, going through this race? Like, what have you visualized? Yeah, even though I'm a couple months out, I can already see myself starting conservatively. I got my hydration vest on. I've got my compression socks. I'm carrying trekking poles. Probably got some gloves uh, to keep my hands warm in the, in the morning there. And I'm probably getting into the starting corral like at the last minute because that's how I roll. <laughs> See, that would cause me a lot of anxiety. I would visualize getting there early, but to each their own, right? I can see myself at the start feeling the excitement, but sticking to a very conservative pace. uh, And my plan is to walk the ups and run the flats and the downs. So I will execute that beautifully, especially the walking part. I know I will execute beautifully. Then uh, I can see myself fueling with UCAN. I can see myself navigating the challenging sections, keeping myself going up, 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 because there's going to be a lot of elevation gain. But I'm going to stop and just look around and admire the beauty around me. It's going to be in the French Alps. It's going to be incredible. Hopefully the sun's shining. Um, So I just really want to breathe in deep and inhale gratitude for just the opportunity to be in such a beautiful place. 
And then I can envision myself moving forward during the later miles when I've been on my feet for like five or six hours already. And because uh, I know it's going to take me a long time to finish. And at that point, I just want to lean into the discomfort, like one of the strategies we talked about, the physical and the emotional discomfort. So I'm going to realize that if I do have negative feelings or thoughts in that moment, I will just acknowledge them, label them, and let my rational brain begin to take over and think thoughts like, like for example, if I feel myself worried about how long the race is taking. I just need to recognize that's going to be expected for such a mountainous race and remind myself that I've trained, that I will finish, that I've done this many times before, and that I'm not being paid to run this marathon. I'm there for my health and for my enjoyment and for the adventure. So just smile and be happy. Then I can see myself finally getting to the end, crossing the finish line, feeling satisfied with the work that I had done to get to the finish line that day. And then immediately looking for a place to sit down (laughs) and something warm to eat and uh, the feeling of euphoria and sense of accomplishment. I can already envision seeing Angie and the kids. The kids are indifferent. (laughs) And Angie jokingly says, what took you so long? (laughs) The kids are annoyed because they're like, where's the Wi-Fi signal? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, look around. Oh, we've seen these mountains already. (laughs) So Angie, you don't have to take as long as I just did there. But uh, as you think about Boston... What do you envision for yourself? You know, like I alluded to before, there's so many unknowns going into a marathon. So most of my visualization is preparing myself for the possible range of emotions. And like you said, Trevor, recognizing them, working through them, and keeping a strong mental game plan. Um, I always like to have a good mantra going in. Sometimes I end up discarding it and picking a new one like midstream because (laughs) something seems, you know, something seems more pertinent. Maybe you see a sign and that like sticks with you. You know, you have to be open to like the flow of the universe. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I see myself just being excited and grateful to be there in the beginning. You know, in the athlete's village, there'll just be thousands of runners around, each kind of in their own stage of nervousness and preparation and anxiety. There's kind of that palpable feeling at the start of a race. There's so much emotion going on, so much excitement. And just try to channel any anxiety and to think like, this is excitement. I feel so grateful and so happy to be here. And I'm just going to try not to blow up in the first few miles because it starts downhill and it's easy to like really go out and bomb out (laughs) when everyone else is excited. So to stay relaxed in the first few miles. And then of course, when I get to the Newton Hills, I just want to stay calm, run strong. I know it's going to hurt. And that's to be expected. Um, but I do, you know, hope to be able to finish that last stretch with a smile on my face and just being proud of myself that I gave it my best, no matter what happens out there. Yeah. So give it a try before you head out on your next long run or get to your next race. Try visualizing the course, seeing yourself succeed. So once again, these uh, strategies for boosting your EQ from the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, quit treating your feelings as bad or good, lean into your discomfort. Stop and ask yourself why you do the things you do. Breathe right, smile and laugh more, take control of your self-talk, and visualize yourself succeeding. Practice these EQ boosting strategies. See how they help your marathon training as you're running with emotional intelligence. And if you want to read more about growing your EQ, once again, the book uh, that we've been referencing is Emotional Intelligence 2.0. And there's a lot of other great books on the subject. Yeah, a couple I've read recently are Permission to Feel by Mark Brackett and Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. Another one that you've read is Emotions Revealed by Paul Ekman. 
And of course, the classic book that kind of started it all, Emotional Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. And we will post the show notes for this episode, everything that I went over on the uh, website with this podcast episode. Find it at MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Hey, and while you're there, you can get our back podcast episodes, 50 that are available in the feed. Become a subscriber so you're notified when new episodes come out. We also have a contact form on the site if you want to send us a message. And if you want to become a member or learn about how our coaching works, you can find out as well. MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Hope to see you all out there at a race in the near future. That's it for now. Thank you for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Always remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.